Criminal Magic. Chapter 12. Tuesday, 9.37, GMT-5. 3 is company, but 4 can be a crowd. Unless the 4th is from an astral vision, in which case you don't really have much choice, now do you? 10 years gone, and I've almost solved the riddle. Rafe exults in himself. He rolls his chair back from the control board and examines a sheaf of perforated result tags. His eyes hurt. Up all night, he consults the wall clock. The staff should be here already. Gotta finish up. Even among the trusted, there are secrets to be kept. There are days, many days, when he wishes he didn't need sleep. Could just keep on working until whatever had caught his attention came to ground, exhausted by his relentless effort. That would be the way to live, full out, 24-7. Over his lifetime, he has seen how most people live and wanted none of it. Children begin life's journey with an abundance of wonder, sparking their every waking hour. Unceasing curiosity draws them forward into a world whose very shape and shadow tender promise. And then, sometime during the late teens or early 20s, a switch flips, and the vast majority of people seem to stall, their vitalizing curiosity transformed to paralyzing fear. Where once they saw nothing but the clear prospect of promise, now they perceive only threat. This conversion metamorphosis, the practical shrinkage of the human spirit of adventure, has kept him at arm's length from almost everyone he's ever met. By maintaining this distance, he has ensured that he will not be contaminated by the loss of wonder that afflicts so many. If only there were more time. But then, that's the whole point. Finding more time? How many hours have I devoted to this project? Ten years? 14 hours a day, he pulls a bottle from his shirt pocket and puts drops in his eyes. Really hate air conditioning. And before that, I haven't had a vacation in, he chuckles at the absurdity of the very thought. The way he's worked, the notion of vacation is nothing more than an abstraction. Rafe stands, shaking his hands to restore circulation. He eyes the slew of formula strewn across the counter, promising himself for the 10,000th time to pay greater, well, some attention to proper filing. He moves over to another computer terminal and inserts a plastic key into the security port. His fingers fly over the keyboard, entering a complex series of coded phrases and numerals that only he knows. Security has to be superb. That is why none of the machines in this space, none, has ever been connected to an outside data source or had a file from another computer system entered into them. Everyone knows what happened with the cloud. What a free-range fail that was. After a moment, the screen flares to life. Rafe likes working at this station. Both elements of the computer are elevated on an adjustable stand so he can work standing up. He types in the command and several coded pages appear on screen. With the addition of several more elements of the cipher, the encrypted message resolves into legible form. He stares at each page, intent on the meaning embedded in the text. Here is the end game the output of the secret life. Ten years of protocol, assays, animal experimentation, and human trials are filed in a box the size of my chest. The filtered sweat of experimentation nearly distilled into the liquor of discovery. Condensation. Hmm. Thank God we've had no regulation. Trust has proved the one constant he could leverage. He has enjoyed the complete trust of his distant superiors. Secrecy is so much easier to maintain when there is nothing to suspect. It doesn't hurt that his associates here in the lab 
our former field workers committed to the secret effort, drawn in one by one by their own fascination with the promise of timelessness. He can imagine what it would have cost this project if there'd been government oversight, or oversight of any kind for that matter. The list of risks, proofs, surveys, serum structures, genetic manipulations, failures that he and his people have gone through ratchet past his memory. No way. And even now, he's not sure it works. Borrowing from the immortal potential demonstrated by cancer cells, Rafe has abstracted their ability to replicate and tried to formalize the process. He's worked backwards in hindering the speed of reproduction and modifying protein usages to force the growth of cells in directable ways. The idea is that this will allow all cells to inherit the limitless possibility for reproduction inherent to those controlled by telomerase dictation. How can you slow down the process, eliminate the problems inherent to immortality itself? These have been huge stumbling blocks, and at the heart of the project was the plant, Amati. From the moment Ramon had told him what the plant was used for, he'd known that this project was the one thing he was meant to pursue. As he cradled the small fragment of vegetation in his hand, he felt himself becoming committed to finding whatever elements existed in the genetic code of this single plant that could stimulate the extension of cell life. If he could replicate the effect of cell immortality, observable in cancer cells without reproducing the calamitous endgame, that would be all he could ask for. This had to be dealt with. The two younger scientists on the walk that day once they regained the safety of their lab coats and focus, dismissed the whole of Ramon's tale as nothing more than a vestigial remnant of times past, a folk tale inhabited by regionally appropriate goblins, right? And suppose they're right, Rafe thought. Suppose there were no such properties locked within the vault of the orange herb genetic code. What if Ramon's storied long bones were nothing more than the ephemeral remnants of a locally bred horror story? All that was possible, but Rafe had returned from their walk that long ago day certain that he'd heard the truth. It resonated in him. Longbones? He didn't know about that. A sect of mountain dwellers that lived above the clouds and the forbidden heights and worshipped the freshwater crocodile? Sure, why not? Cannibals? Absolutely. Some said there were still tribes in the lower Amazon, down in southeastern Peru, for example, that ate human flesh. They'd been around since long before the Spaniards. So what? There was something in the plant. It was as if it spoke to him. But intuition isn't science. All his training urged him to ignore feelings and rely instead on empirical evidence only. This impulsive urge, this new direction, flew in the face of all he had learned to believe about scientific process. It didn't matter. He was infused, inspired, burning with an urgent exhilaration, a sense of purpose and certainty which mitigated his secret thoughts, made him certain beyond the ability to be sidetracked by anything as trivial as doubt. Rational objections were to be dismissed, recognized and treated as nothing more than the insignificant hindrance proposed by small minds. Forget all that. What if it could be done? Hiding the goal from his entire staff and co-workers had required extraordinary stealth and planning. Before he'd gained any allies, Rafe had to bury the true nature of his experimentation inside other, more easily explained goals. Some of it was easy. After all, the main lab was a joint venture experimental station with the UWA. There were uncountable projects and pathways being traveled at any given time. 
Practical politics demanded that the indigenous peoples of the region be able to justify their demands for a full withdrawal of extractive industry from the biosphere. And in order to demonstrate convincingly that there were medical and social benefits to the world that would be lost if extractive industries were allowed to strip the land, eco-groups and native peoples joined to create a for-profit enterprise hinged on the cultivation, manufacture, and distribution of natural suticles. Inside the enterprise of producing products beneficial to the health and well-being of the planet, Rafe ran his subterfuge. First alone, and later with the aid of a cohort, he'd screened his goals behind piggyback protein analysis, duplicate double-blind experiments, and other devices, all the while pushing the work of his own agenda ahead as vigorously as was humanly possible. And all the while, he funded his increasingly far-flung plans, plans that came to him as if he had known the diagram flowchart formula for their construction since childhood. The manufacture of a sprawling remote ancillary to the work here in the jungle seemed an obvious route for him to take. All the component parts were like that. The sponsorship of ward armies in North America's West gave him surrogates inside the Indu game. It seemed obvious to him that this structure would be useful. The contract killer crews, bent to his own practical political outcomes, thought they were operating at the pleasure of some renegade Hindu topsider. But Rafe knew instinctively that money was the only incentive necessary to convince these hirelings that their cause was just. The duplicate labs and front echo groups, funded with monies he'd diverted from the nutraceutical business, ensured that his efforts would reach fruition no matter what outside forces were arrayed against him. In effect, he lived two lives. And behind it all, behind the good work of the lab, the legitimate and blessed campaign to maintain the health of one of the Earth's vanishing strongholds of biodiversity, behind the truth that a living biozone could produce greater wealth than one left in ruins by short-term prospecting, Rafe raced to develop what he believed could be the greatest find in the history of mankind. The conquistador thought it was a totem, an object of desire, but it was right under their feet all along the secret to eternal life. Tuesday, 2100 hours, GMT minus 5. Pass the potatoes, would you? Coordinator reaches for the wooden bowl. Crickets scrawl their songs on the night wind outdoors, and flying insects the size of small pets flutter and beat at the beacon of well-lit windows. It's late, the traditional time for supper in Latin America. The table is set with a bowl of roses floating in sugar water and plates of deer meat, yellow potatoes, rice, and sweetbread from Senor Fonsconzo's oven and flame grapes from Answer's own vines. I've got to admit, coordinator says between bites, personally, I think all this talk of visions and dreams is a bunch of bullshit, but part of my assignment is that I get up north to San Sebastian so I can look in on some ecotizers we've got arrangements with up there. She smiles wryly. House isn't convinced everything as it seems to be up there. She nods at Luce. Anyhow, now that you're here, I can get on with the next piece of business. Luz looks up from her plate. There was something I did not say earlier today. Someone reached me in Waraz four days ago, a man I trust and know very well. He is a shaman from the cloud forest of the Tama on the Venezuela side of the border south of San Cristobal. We talked together for some time as those from our tribes have talked across the same space for thousands of years. He asked me to come. 
He says a wrong is being done there. He says the balance of things is being toyed with in a dangerous way. I told the truth when I said that my reason for being here was to see answer, but that is not all there is to tell. Coordinator, find herself sitting quietly, hands in her lap, listening to Lewis. She feels suddenly resigned. Whatever is wrong is bigger than the oil companies or the collective. Part of a vision? Shaman's telling me where to go? Whatever. She sits patiently, her mind made up of the realities. She's already packed, halfway to wherever the godforsaken hell she's going. The food is good. And the rest she's gotten while guarding the misogynist oddball is the best she's had in 10 years. All right, then. Sometimes you don't push back. When the globe rolls, you roll with it, or you're crushed. But this is definitely getting weird. I'll have a ride here by nine in the morning, Answer says after a moment. It's nothing more than an announcement. For anyone with an interest, the train to Bucaramanga and all points east is leaving on track 29. Last call. Can I snag one of those roses from the bowl there? Thanks. He lays a couple of the richly scented petals between his cheek and gum and settles back in his chair. At least this'll lift the boredom of hanging around the house. Good. I was just about tired off my ass laying around waiting for, to get better, he says. He's seen this before and knows that Luz is not here to passenger. She's here to drive, so give her her head. And that's the way the day lays its head down as the three of them move off toward the disputable comforts of sleep and the navigation of vagrant dreams. Wednesday, 8.33, GMT minus 8. Pill is nearly enjoying himself, which comes as a pleasant surprise. Jobs, work, any sort of organized activity that demands you be someplace a given number of hours every day gets on his nerves. Always has. Working in the reduction into the labs is definitely stressful. Every day there's a puzzle to solve, and each one is like a jigsaw without a picture. It's like making up a game in order to be able to play so that you can see whether or not you might win. No guarantees. That is the interesting bit. Pill walks away from the lime green illumination of the light's podium reader and breaks through the door into the covered atrium. Ah, fresh air. His hand almost reaches the shirt pocket before his arm remembers. That habit died eight years ago. Man, what a machine. Can't even erase old programs. Well, not altogether, anyhow. He bends at the waist and begins doing some stretches. The air inside is so... Uh, he doesn't bother finishing the complaint to himself. Why complain about something that's not going to change? A drug addict's life is full of constant nattering complaints. Never enough drugs or money, always too much expense and habit. Not going to be anything different, so what's the bitch about? Such a life was what Pill had resigned himself to. The facts of the world that formed an infinite loop around his life. Finally, one day, he'd had enough of his own whining and decided it's a vicious cycle and there's the end of the discussion. Now, where am I going to get the fill-in-the-missing item? After that, he was on a mission. The memory gives him a laugh long ago and far away. He flexes his abdominal muscles and begins to stretch as he stands, pulling in lungfuls of the atrium's cool air. Tar babies, heroin smokers, used to be one of my favorite complaints in the hierarchy of addiction. Those chumps were at the low end of the ladder, on the same rung as airheads, those blown-out crack users or flashers, the crispy meth heads. Tar babies were the worst, 
Unlike most opiate users, this class of addicts had tendencies toward violence, and their habit was of the fast-growing variety, high-need-to-remedy quotient, lots of gangster types in Datar, lots of dead fumers. Hill remembers he started calling the smokers tar babies because they reminded him of that old racist story about Rare Rabbit, how he got one foot stuck in the tar ball. It was all about blaming the tar for his troubles, even though it was only him stuck his foot in the tar ball like that. Same with the burners. Those brothers were always on about how they were snagged because, whatever it was, Pill had John moves himself through a 10-minute exercise routine he uses to center himself. Two minutes sitting with his eyes closed, no new information. Pill inhales deeply and stands, refreshing. As he's turning to go back into the lab, a female voice reaches him. Hey, John, please, may I have a word with you? Hedda Jornley. Pill knows that voice, and if he didn't, he'd know the manner. No one else he knows speaks so formally. It's really sort of a pleasure to listen to such refined speech. He turns back toward her. Dr. John Lee, nice to see you. How you been? You look well. Wow, something about this woman, he thinks. Whenever I'm talking with her, I feel like I'm a better guy. Nice of you to say so, John. Good to see you as well, she manages a smile. Do you have a moment? I would appreciate it if you could give me some thoughts on something. Absolutely, my pleasure. Be of any help. What do you need? The stoop-shouldered scientist was another woman, a much younger woman, whose clear eyes and close-cropped hair suggest eagerness. This is, there's a beat of hesitation, well, for the moment we're calling her Dana. This is Dana, Dr. John Fullman. John heads up the chemical side of our reverse engineering laboratory. Nice to meet you, the 30th woman extends a hand. My pleasure. Pill gives her hand a slight yank. He's not sure yet that he means what he's saying, but considering the source, he's willing to listen. What brings you here, Professor? Don't see you much on this side. Yes, that's true, Hedda shakes her head in agreement. So much to do. It's as if she's already doing these other things. Might we sit down? My back. Please. Pill moves toward a low bench set in the center of the open space. We are here because Dana needs a job, Hedda says. She tells me that she has had some technical training, and I thought that with your extensive public health mandate of your program, you might be able to fit her in at some point in the scheme of things. Turning to the woman with the pixie cut, Pill says, Well, miss, sorry, but I can get your last name. Nothing. She sits etched in place, speechless. Tears well. The professor intervenes as she lays a calming hand on the other woman's arm. John, we have come to you for help. Dana arrived in Newtown about a week ago. A friend of mine, an old acquaintance from my days with the Greens, a man called Hamish, brought Dana to me and told me she needed our assistance. It turns out our young friend here was badly injured in some type of fall down south. Once she'd recovered enough to travel, friends of hers secretly brought her back to Portland, and she'd been living in the hiding place since she's arrived. Don't like being a burden, Dana blurts out. I have some kind of accident or... Maybe it wasn't the people I know. Well, I don't really know them, but anyway, people say I'm an activist. They say my name is Dana, and I'm a collective member. I can remember things from when I was little, but I can't remember my own fucking last name. She clenches her fists, but doesn't seem sad or desperate. The pill, she appears to be angry and frustrated. Hold on now. 
No need to get all pissy-like, pilled sloths. Professor, what exactly is going on here? Dana has, we believe, a form of short-term amnesia. She is evidently in a coma, although certain parts of her memory are perfectly normal. Her recent past is simply missing. As you can see, she knows how to perform socially, and she is quite intellectually adept. An hour ago, she listed 20 of the lowest priority elements of the periodic table from memory. What we are trying to determine is why she was injured and what her last name is. The people who brought me here say I never used a last name with them, Dana chimes in. For some reason, they think I'm in trouble or, or danger or that I should be a good thing if I just got away from here. Pill holds up a staying figure. So what you're asking for is some time to work through this investigation of Dana's memory, right? And in the meantime, I'm guessing, you had in mind that she could work her way in with me and find herself useful. Is that right? Precisely what I had in mind, John. Right you are. Would it be possible for you to accommodate us in that way? This is a hell of a way to run a fucking business, Bill thinks to himself. But he smiles and says, Supposing your ward here is up for the job, I'm sure we can work something out. Dana, why don't you come with me now and uh, I'll see where we can fit you in. Wednesday, 8.50, GMT minus 5. 8.49, Renee's voice crowds the air. Well, son, there are not a whole lot of folks in all Latin America would lay claim to being early anywhere near more than once or twice in a lifetime. He whisks the patina of reddish road dust from his pants with the back of his hand and slaps the door to his huge truck shut with an elbow. He strides up to the house, honing in on answer. Not that I'm laying claim to any sort of superiority at all. Hardly. Wouldn't befit a man of my breeding and status. Oh, what the hell? What you got to say for your sorry self, boy? Near as I can make out. Not close to what you have to say about your own self, answer claps him on the back. Come on in and meet your other passengers. You hungry at all? Nope. Good. Saves me the trouble of pretending I've got leftovers. Want something to drink? Not till a decent hour, sir. Renee's head swivels as he takes in the hilltop. He makes out the two women waiting for them at the dining room table. My land, boy. You mean to say you actually know women? I've heard such a thing had happened, but knowing you, I had long ago put that bald lie to bed. Luz is at the door, swinging it wide. I am Luz, she says, extending her hand, and this is Answer's associate, coordinator. Some people have charm. And others only hear about it through the grapevine, coordinator replies, giving an edgy handshake herself. I hear you got quite the bead eye, Renee says. Saved our boy's bacon such as it is. Want to thank you for that, him being a long-time client, no? Be hard on us money-wise if he was to go suddenly missing. His head nods. Yes, ma'am. Thanks. Our in order. Answer steps around the group on his way to the small pile of bags stacked by the stairwell. Well, if you two have all your things ready, we should get moving. It's nine sharp, announces Renee, as if it were a discovery of some moment. What sort of refreshments can you offer a thirsty traveler before we make off on the next leg of our trip? I thought you said no to that offer, Answer says. Yes, sir, I did. But that was before it turned nine. I'm no hun. No civilized man drinks before the end of breakfast hour. Jesus, where are your manners? Go on about your business, he waves them toward the car and loading. I believe I am familiar enough with the homestead here to find my way to the oasis. 
Just settle into the old land train now while I tend to my thirst. Ladies, accommodate yourselves as you like. Be with y'all in no time at all. The trip down the mountain to the landing strip is brief but painful. Renee's beater truck looks and feels as if its shocks and axles have long ago given up the ghost. He pulls to a creaky stop just off the field where an old turboprop sits waiting. Nice ride, coordinator says. Any other antiques around? Renee turns and grins from the front seat. Maybe, oh, missy, but she'll get you there and don't forget it. This old lady had got me out of more scrapes than a fresh razor. Renee gathers the bags and stows them up front before leading everyone up to their seats through the lowered rear of the plane. Once they're all in, Renee seals up the doors and walks to the front cockpit entry. Safety features of this vessel include absolutely nothing at all, ladies and gents, so don't worry about a thing because nothing going to happen, he says, turning to look at the rear of the plane. So now that we got that covered, who is my co-pilot? Answer raises one hand slightly. I'll take the hot seat, he says. I'd like to keep an eye on you. Lou's in coordinator, takes seats up near the front of the plane, and Renee runs quickly through the pre-flight checklist before coughing the engines into life. After a few moments of warming up, they roll under the dirt runway and taxi off. Overhead, the sky is crowded with ephemeral cities of cloud. Literal skyscrapers of cumulus twist and buckle constantly morphing from one shape into another. Luz never tires of watching this miracle of transformation. To her, such uniform and haphazard change reflects the essence of what it is to be a living creature. All things fleeting, permanence composed of changeable parts, she is not discomforted by the elementarily fugitive nature of things. In her mind, it is clear that every aspect of the natural world, perhaps even the supernatural, is subject to change of form, birth to death, death to something else. And who are the clouds? This idea gives her pleasure. Science itself is sure that all the singular bits of this reality are merely the reorganized elements of things that have gone before, reconstituted as rocks or water, fish or insects, or gathered together as clouds. One of her assets as a seer is the acceptance of things as they are. She looks up at the massive presence of the pilot, Renee. Does he know he was the fourth person in my dream? No. Will that missing piece of information mean anything to anyone but me? No. What shape are we shifting into today? What are we about to become? She has an idea, but it is not for anyone else to know. A vision handed down from one woman to the next in a line as long as memory. And now she is here with these men and the woman standing in the dream whose time has come out of the future and into the present. Renee is something new. She has not seen him before. The place he stood in the visions was always occupied, but never by a man. In that place, there was always a speckled bear, mute and powerful, aligned with no one. Now this man stands in the place of the giant animal. Luz is deeply amused by wonder. Mysterious that one can know so much about a thing, and yet know nothing. The plane dips and shudders, passing through grasping shards of wind. Answer is quiet settled into a meditation that will last the four hours of flying time. He's glad to be in motion. For him, there is no fear of what is coming. Now he drinks in the exhilaration of movement and the edgy, adrenalized tinge of impending action. Coordinator, too, is examining the clouds. For her, 
They are a physics problem representing a navigational challenge. Their pilot, this huge bluff of man, is good, really good. Flying this low in order to ensure there are no problems with the weather requires a very cool temperament. Behind that facade of cool, you're another guy altogether, aren't you, she thinks. A hard ass. I bet my last dime on it. Gotta give it to Mr. Lo-Fi on this one. When it comes to being ready for any sort of company, he doesn't travel light. Renee loves flying. If it weren't for his passengers, he'd be deep in the base of the huge cloud masses he's skimming beneath. Inside the clouds, there's a torment of turbulence, a wrenching power so immense and uncontrolled it can easily mangle a small plane. Getting tossed, losing control or the illusion of control is a life-threatening gas. He has a romantic fascination with risk. Sometimes it borders on the lunatic. He glances at his instrument panel, gauging the amount of speed and elevation he needs to make the flight as manageable as possible. When he's taking care of other people, he avoids his own interest to focus on their comfort. It's all part of the deal. Answer hasn't told him much about the reason for this trip or anything in particular about the women, and he can see why. Two real cases, these babes. The tall one is very serious. Everything on a wire and no screwing around. A shooter, too, he's betting. And the thin one, well, she's special. Got that otherworld feel about her? He risks a look, loses way, dropping her a nod. That's enough to creep a guy out, Renee thinks, the way she looks at you, straight through you like you're a window. He can feel the pressure in his stomach. She's the real deal of some variety or another. Things are going to be real interesting up north, he hums to himself as he adjusts the autopilot. Real bojo interesting. We will be back next week with Chapter 13 of Criminal Magic. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and comment, and tell some friends about this podcast.